here in Isaiah chapter 8, the very end of it, you see the people having forsaken their trust in God, turning in verse 19 to the mediums, the spiritists, who whisper and mutter, and they are in darkness, they have no dawn, they, uh, verse 21, the land is hard pressed and famished, they're hungry, they curse the king and their God, Verse 22, then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. There is where people are when they don't turn to God. It's darkness and gloom and anguish. And that's exactly where God's people were. You see the northern kingdom go into captivity, Assyrian captivity. And a century and a third later, Judah goes into Babylonian captivity. The darkness and the gloom becomes real to them as they are separated even from their land, the land of God, from their temple, the house of God. What a dark, dismal thing when people turn away from God, the source of all light. And it's that in that context that we read chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you, according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle, and garments rolled in blood, will be used for burning and fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I'll tell you, if there's anything you think when you read a passage like that, it is the absolutely amazing grace of God. <laughs> Here you have the darkness of these people who've tried to light their own fires and it's failed miserably and they have no revelation from God and they have no connection with God and so it's gloom, darkness, distress, anguish and what happens in chapter 9? Light! No more gloom! for her who, her who was in anguish because the light of God is going to dawn by his grace and mercy and it's going to dawn where? Galilee in the land of which tribes? you remember where Zebulun and Naphtali settled? <coughs> Galilee in what part of the land? The very northernmost part of the land. Now if you look at 2 Kings 15.29 in the history of the northern kingdom Israel uh, in 15.29 before the captivity of Israel itself in the days of Pekah king of Israel Tiglath-Pileser king of Assyria came and captured Ijon and Abel Bethmega and Genoa and Kadesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee all the land of Naphtali and he carried them captive to Assyria. That's 2 Kings 15.29. The first part of the land to go into darkness was that very northernmost part. Kind of logical. The first part that the Assyrians came to as they came out of the north and invaded. They took Naphtali and those northernmost cities into captivity first. The first part of the country to be punished was the first part to receive the light. 
here. Perhaps the least likely area, the part farthest away from Jerusalem, the part farthest away from perhaps the source of God's presence and God's light, that's where God, by his grace, caused the light to dawn first. Now you know what this is referring to? Jesus. Jesus. This passage is quoted over in Matthew chapter 4, believe it or not, in an encouraging context for us. In verse 12 of Matthew 4, right after the temptation, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. You've heard of Capernaum, haven't you? A lot in the Gospels, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's your fulfillment, very clearly of this, have you ever wondered why Jesus chose to settle in Galilee? Why Capernaum almost was his hometown, kind of adopted hometown, grew up in Nazareth, not that far away. But in his ministry, Capernaum was kind of the focus in that Sea of Galilee region, way up in the north, good ways away from Jerusalem. Well, this all fulfills this passage that God would cause the light first to dawn in the place where you would least expect it. And so just as God at the creation in the darkness said, let there be light, so God says it again in this spiritual darkness and there was the light of Christ in that most unlikely of places. Comments or questions on verses 1 and 2? In verse 3, what blessing does God give? Yes, growth of the nations. As Hebrews 2.10, God was going to bring many sons to glory. And what else do you see in verse 3? The joy. The, the, when, when God's light dawns and he multiplies the nation, there is great joy. And why? There are the blessings of verse 3 are followed by three verses starting with four, at least in the New American Standard. Four verse four. <laughs> For what? Yoke is broken. Yes, God will break the the yoke, the slavery. Well, what were they enslaved to? Really, the slavery is primarily what? Sin, absolutely. He breaks the yoke off of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Just like the Battle of Midian. You remember that one, don't you? Who fought the Battle of Midian? Gideon. Gideon. Well, <laughs> of all things. You remember Gideon? Now, what region was primarily affected and most involved with Gideon? Do you remember? Yeah, this region right here. Yeah, that's right. Some of you remember that? I'll have to find the passages. Let's see. Uh, Judges 6, verse uh, 34. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and the Abiezrites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh. They also were called together to follow him and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they came up to meet him. (laughs) So Gideon's focus, the troops and the battle was mostly up in that northernmost region. Isn't that appropriate that he says there's going to be a deliverance from oppression just like there was up there with Gideon. And you see how, uh, you know, there's so much in these passages that no human author could ever have designed. Uh, That's just really uh, an encouraging thing. And uh, verse 5, 
for they're going to defeat their enemies. Every boot of uh, booted warrior in the battle, tumult and cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning fuel for the fire. They're going to destroy their enemies. Four verse six, and this is an amazing thing. All of this is going to come about because. Because a child will be born. The basis of these great blessings and wonderful expectations is a child will be born to this. All of this. Because of a child's birth? Of all things. But this child will be no ordinary child because the government will rest on his shoulders. He will actually become the king. And his name will be called... Whenever you see a name in the Bible, it's not just the the thing somebody goes by, so you can, you know, summon them. It has to do with the revelation of who they are and what they are, their character. So this tells you who he is, what he is. His name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor. Now, we've been seeing the folly... Of, of human wisdom, uh, you know, Ahaz and you know his allegiance to Assyria and all this, he will be the wonderful counselor. Counselor, he'll have the true wisdom. It's not his only name. What else do they call him? This is going to be mighty God. Here's a son that'll be born who's actually mighty God. This is the enigma of the Old Testament. How could David's son be David's Lord? How could the child born be mighty God? And that that, uh, expression, mighty God, is used in 1021. Clearly, this is a reference to the Lord himself. That that really scratch your head and do us a child will be born and, and he'll be mighty God. And what else do they call him? Eternal Father. Well, you know how uh, God raised up various um, kings and deliverers in the past, and how long did they last? At most until they died. This is Eternal Father. And what else do they call him? because here's a king whose greatness is seen not so much in the wars he fights but in the peace that he brings there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom you know he's going to uh, you know be a, a mighty ruler to establish and to hold it with justice and righteousness be looking for that all through the book especially every time we come to a messianic passage because the characteristics of God's rule and of the Messiah's rule justice and righteousness and how do we know that this is really going to happen because it has we have an outline for it how did they know it was really going to happen absolutely this is not a work of man if it was who knows Half of those go up in smoke. It's the zeal of God that's going to accomplish this. You can count on it. That is a tremendous passage. You know, one of the most striking and powerful messianic passages there is. In the midst of the gloom of chapters 7 and 8, there is the, the hope that shines forth, the grace of God that will break through and provide deliverance and blessing for his people who have failed so badly. Comments and questions? By the, uh, it says, and the government rests on his shoulders. Does that mean the heavenly kingdom? I Yeah, I mean, it means that the Messiah will become the king. And uh, I guess, really, we would say that Jesus is king over what? Yes. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, I recognize that there are some rebels in the Lord's kingdom at the moment. Sometimes there are rebels in the kingdoms of earthly kings, too. And Jesus could just annihilate every rebel the moment they rebelled. Why doesn't he do that? We'd all be dead. 
yes, uh, mortality rate would be pretty high at that. And uh, in the terms of the parable of the tares, he might yank out some of the wheat with the tares, so he lets them grow together till the harvest. He's king, he's reigning, but he allows some rebellion to go on in his empire at the moment, but in the end, he will deal with it, because he is king of kings over all things. Other questions and comments to verse 7? I remember this passage. This is uh, pretty powerful. And I think this is kind of the end of a little section here. Even though 7 through 12, I think, is dealing uh, with the same general subject. It's dealing with the... uh, um, you know, threat from Aram and Israel. Seven one to nine seven sort of ties up in a section, and then starting in nine eight, we're looking at it more from the standpoint of the Northern Kingdom. Starting in nine eight, seven one to nine seven is looking at more from the standpoint of Judah and their role in all of this. All right. Yes, John. So in verse five, are we seeing a transition, or are we seeing a change that's being indicated by? You know, these, these things associated with war being used for fuel, what's the point they made there? Well, I think that they defeated their enemies and they're taking all their stuff and using it for fuel means the enemy's been defeated. Okay. That, that's what I think. I think the war's been successful. The war's over, right? Part of it's the, he's the Prince of Peace. He's delivered. You know, he's torn off the the yoke of the oppressor yeah yeah when when they get to that point <laughs> they've won other thoughts I think it's kind of like continues several of the messianic prophecies chapter 2 talked about the peace and chapter 7 talked about the child and it kind of combines both of those and talks about peace, the Prince of Peace is the child. Yes, and I think it's very uh, appropriate to sort of see the Messianic passages as cumulative. You know, you kind of build, one builds on the next, and you just kind of continue building and, and elaborating and developing that theme. Alan? When it calls him Mighty God and Eternal Father, like, is that just saying that Jesus is the same thing as God, or are there two separate entities? I never really understood that that much. Uh, well, join the uh, last 20 uh, centuries of uh, Christians. Uh, yeah, we don't completely understand that. I mean, because what the Bible teaches is that there's one God, and yet there is a threesome in the one God that are distinct. But each of the three, if we want to talk about that, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all partake fully in the nature and quality of Godness. So when, for example, the Old Testament uses Yahweh or Jehovah, you can see from the New Testament that applies to Jesus just as much as it does to the Father. They share fully in the nature of God, and yet there are distinctions among those three in terms of their role and function and whatever. So, but that's the mystery. I mean, that's the thing that the first few centuries after Christ debated to no end, trying to sort out the, the nature and role of the Trinity and also the deity and humanity of Christ. All of that's really beyond us. We have to believe what the Bible says about it, but we'll never totally grasp that. Logan. Uh, about a year ago, I did a word study on the different words that the Bible uses for God. And I found out that uh, there's about three or four, about two or three different words, but that uh, that's tra- they are all translated God. And I remember looking at this specific passage, but I know that there's uh, one word that was translated the one true God, and another that was translated just a deity or a God. And so this, I think, in my opinion, I'd have to look it up on a Bible program to be sure, but I think this might be more talking about mighty God and the fact that Jesus is God, that he is a deity. 
that I see it as. Yes, I think you're right about that. I believe, but I'm not sure. Somebody may know. I don't know if anybody's got a Hebrew text. I think this is like El Gibor or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce Hebrew. Uh But but the El, I believe, is used more exclusively for God. The Elohim, the plural, I think can sometimes be used for gods or even for human rulers. So I think you're probably right about that. Um, Yeah, Caleb. I thought it was interesting, up until this point, like all the children have been bad signs for the new rulers, and yet now they are child is coming and delivering. That's an interesting thought, I hadn't thought about that. We've been talking a lot about children were saying how bad it was, and now. That's a curiosity. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's that's interesting. Here's a child ruler that's good. There are tons of children through here. I mean, in these several of these chapters, you have you know children born to Isaiah, and you know a child in seven, and a child in nine, and and uh, I don't know exactly what to do with all that either. But that is an interesting feature. Other thoughts? All right. In chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who stay in pride and arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with huge stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin against them and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Now this is against Jacob, Israel, Ephraim, Samaria, clear references to the northern kingdom, and God is opposed to them because of... Pride and arrogance. And you can see that demonstrated in what? The building plans? Yes. The bricks have fallen down. Hey, but that's that's really going to be an advantage when you stop and think about it. Because, you know, we're we build with smooth stones. You know, the sycamores have been cut down. But it's really for the best. We'll replace them with cedars. You know, we can handle it. You know, no matter how bad it gets, life hands you lemon, we'll make lemonade. You know, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do something with this. And so as they were being chastened by the Lord, and as they were suffering defeats, they just became prideful and thought, well, we'll build it back bigger and better. Nobody's gonna defeat us. <laughs> they kind of brush off the disaster. God hates pride. He hates the attitude that no matter what kind of a setback there is, oh, we can handle it. We're, we're good. We're tough. We're strong. You know, what do you think about that? There, it seems like they're really trying to run the fact that God's against them. You're right. But it really seems like, because I know if they really have it in their head that God's against them, they're not, they're not going to be thinking these things. So they're really thinking it's only man against them, and so they, have, they always have the ability to make things better. That's one good point. That's exactly right. You ever see uh, manifestations of this kind of prideful attitude? You guys are almost too young anymore. Uh, wow. But, uh, and I guess not quite, but some of you are. But, like 9-11, remember all the statements that were made, you know, we will not falter, we will not fail, whatever that thing was that President Bush said. You know, and I even, you know, people like, well, we'll just build them back better. You know, that, that'll just be an advantage. We're going to show them nobody can do that to us. If there's anything that probably is a horrible sign for the future of our country, it's this prideful attitude that we can handle anything and we'll just make it better and stronger and tougher, you know, and all that. Because pride is what God is most against. You can see that in individuals and you can see it in churches. I mean, wow. 
This do-it-yourself, we can handle it, is bad, John. <laughs> Where is that wrong, though? Because, let's say 9-11, the president can't come out there crying and whatever. Oh, <laughs> well, good. I mean, because of what that will do to the nation. Where, does, where do you say, you know, we will be strong and we will whatever, and then how, where does it go too far? Well, I think it goes too far when it's um, self-sufficient and self-confident. I think ultimately we need to rely on the Lord and realize that if the Lord gives us the strength and the Lord chooses to allow it, we'll rebuild. But when it becomes this, we will do this because we are strong and nobody can push us around, I think that's where it becomes wrong. Uh, I don't know if somebody got a thought about that. Well, it just, it's a human pride thing. You know, it doesn't matter. There's, you know, it doesn't matter if there's a guy out there or not. We won't take care of ourselves. We'll be fine. Uh, it doesn't look to God. And you know, if, if times get tough, we'll just stick together. You know, by ourselves or maybe by myself, it'll be okay. It just doesn't look to God at all. It's just a a view of man as uh, self-important. And, you know, the, they're, it's dark, but we can make a little bit of light and we'll be okay with that. Yes. Yeah. Joshua, God told Joshua to be strong and courageous, but he said be strong and courageous because you'll be in me and I'll be with you. Yeah, I think that's the thing, whether or not we depend on God or whether or not we're trying to do it on our own. John? Well, I just think it's particularly, uh, I don't know, just hard for the president to say anything, you know, spiritually minded because he's leading a nation of all different religions and stuff, so we wouldn't expect him to get up there and say something, you know, very spiritually minded in the first place. Isn't that a shame? Yeah. Yeah, we really wouldn't in our day, you know, but wow. (laughs) One candidate that did has been crucified for it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, (laughs) you know, it's going to be bad if you do. Yeah, uh, that's, I mean, it just says something, uh, you know, about our culture and attitude and think about it personally and think about it in connection with churches and so forth how so often we don't we don't see dependence on God we just assert ourselves another thing I mean if you're le- if you're in the world and you're leading people that that don't have the same religious beliefs as you I mean that presents problems and I don't know how you deal with that it, without forcing your own beliefs and your own rely on God on them, you know, and and, I, and you want them to see that, and of course that's going to come out, but you don't want to make it so overbearing that you know, yeah, I'm different. I mean, I rely on something totally different. You don't have access to, you know, you kind of get what I'm saying. But I mean, it's kind of a tough thing to lead others in a situation where you're led by different things totally. That is a challenge, isn't it? How do you deal with your faith in the midst of a world of unbelievers? I've often thought of that very thing when we read some of the Old Testament stories about the kings. And the king turned back to God when this whole wicked nation, you know, what did they do? When the king turned turned to God, of course, at that time he had a little more sovereignty over everyone and, and told them what was going to happen. But even then, you know, it did not automatically change their hearts. But he went ahead and made that switch. What about the prophets like Isaiah? <clears throat> wow. But yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, you've got a lot of examples of that in the Old Testament. Kings, prophets, whatever, in dark situations. What did they do? I mean, you know, here's what I worry about. We know it's culturally unacceptable to give credit to God so we don't you know we're not going to say well thank God he did this he did that he blessed me in this way because well people are going to think that's stupid so we say well I did this I did that you know I blessed myself like this because people will like it better is that the right approach we're not called to be socially acceptable Amen, Dustin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think people are going to think we're weird. Well, I think we sort of are. You know? <laughs> what do they think about Jesus? 
Toto, what do you think? Challenging things. I mean, because of their pride, verse 11 and 12, the Lord's going to raise up adversaries against them. The east, the west, and they're devouring Israel. In spite of all this, remember this statement from back in chapter 5? His anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. You thought that punishment was bad? Well, it's not over yet. <laughs> More is coming. Comments and thoughts through 12. I think what we're getting at, especially with verse 10, is that verse 10 probably encapsulates the American spirit, which is, in spite of adversity, we will make it. You know, we land over here, we freeze through the winter, but it's okay because we're hardy and we made it. You know, we had to fight off the Brits to, to keep this country, but we did it because we're tough. And I mean, I think what that just points out, what we've been saying all along is the American spirit as we think of it is not really compatible with the biblical model. Amen. What is our phrase? Uh, this is an ancient phrase, but pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's not exactly a biblically focused statement, is it? Right. Yeah. Good point, Mason. Shane. So, though Sorry. initially there was a much stronger. Uh, presence of God in the lives of those who were, you know, starting the American spirit. Not that not that they were, you know, totally right and dependent on, on God in all things, but there was no uh, embarrassment of making a public statement about their trust in God. I think that is true more so in the past, though probably not even then, like it should have been in some cases, but yeah, I think it probably was. Shane? You know, a little bit different note, but and we were talking earlier about how, you know, exalt ourselves, we will be humble, humble ourselves, we will be exalted. And we almost look at it as if it's a weak thing to do to trust in God above men. And it says later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, in verses 27 and 31, that those who call or wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run, not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. So really... We are at our zenith of power at our strongest point, and we are weak, and we do trust in the And for us, we look at it and think we're being weak because we're trusting in something that we can't see, but we will be at our strongest point when this country and us as a people, and us as individuals, trust in the Lord. Amen. Morgan? Going along with what Shane said, I think that that uh, self-confident mindset, I think, I've thought for a long time, is probably the reason that an event like 9-11 happened in the first place. <laughs> Because it would not, it wouldn't be the first time that God used something like this to uh, get our attention that we're not the ones in control. Amen. Other thoughts and comments on any of this through twelve? Thirteen to seventeen. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. For the Lord cuts off the head and tail from Israel both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tale. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. In 13, what's their problem? They don't seek the Lord. Yeah. They don't turn back to God. They don't seek God. His focus in 14 to 16 is on what class of people? Yeah. The leadership. The leadership. Yeah. You know, the, the elder, the honorable man, the prophet, those who guide the people. And there's there's corruption in the leadership and so the followers are brought to confusion. And so God's going to bring punishment upon them. He's going to cut them off, verse 14, in a single day, suddenly. Um, and, and he's going to punish not only the people at large, but remarkably in this passage, he's even going to punish who? 
That, I believe, may be the only passage in the Old Testament where God's against even the orphans and the widows. They were the prime objects of God's concern. When his compassion is withdrawn from the orphans and the widows, it's bad. It's really bad then. Comments and questions through verse 17. Verse 13 reminds me of something that happened quite frequently in my childhood, at least, where um, your parents would spank you, and then immediately you'd turn and you'd want, you know, a hug from them because you were you were hurting, you were feeling pain, and they were the person that you would turn to when that happened. And yet they're the per- I mean, it's kind of funny in a sense because they're the they just hurt you, and you turn to them for comfort. Um, and I guess it would have to be a, a pretty rebellious and stubborn child that wouldn't do that. And that's that's what God is saying they're not doing. Yes. Yeah, you're that's a good point. Yeah, good thought. They wow, in this situation not turning to God indicates a really hard heart. Other thoughts? You see His hand is still stretched out. 18 to 21. For wickedness burns with the fire. Shall devour the briars and the thorns, and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up. The people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim and Manasseh together they shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. I tell you, wickedness is self-destructive. The wickedness burns like fire, consumes the briars, the thorns, the thickets, and and burns everything up. The people are like fuel for the fire. One man destroys another. You see, the the predatory spirit of non-believing peoples turning on each other. Verse 20, they slice off what's on the right hand, and... How do they feel? Still hungry. So they eat what's on the left hand and? Sin never satisfies. You always still, still feel hungry. It always leaves you empty. So they eat the flesh of their own arm. Sin ends up devouring itself. In the end, Satan's kingdom is divided. And he, in the end, he fights against himself. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim, Manasseh. Uh, remember Ephraim and Manasseh? Where'd they come from? They were more closely related than any of the other tribes because they were the grandsons of Jacob, each of which got a tribe. And yet they're at odds with each other and the only thing that unites them is their common enmity against Judah. (laughs) Their common animosity. So you see the destructive nature of sin, how God uses sin to punish itself in spite of all this. His anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. God is still ready to whip them again and again and again. We some some people think, well, you know, I don't have to worry about anything. I've gone through hell on earth. No, people have no clue. You know, I remember in John five when Jesus healed that man who'd been lame there by that pool, and uh, then later the man found him and he says, "Go and sin no more, so that nothing worse befall you." What could be worse than being lame since you were born? A whole lot of things. And there's a whole lot worse God could do than he's ever thought to do to anybody so far in this life. So never underestimate God's ability to punish more. Comments and questions on chapter 9. Um, uh, going back to verse 13, I sorry, I didn't bring it up before. 
it relates over to uh, Amos chapter 4. And uh, in there, God's listing a lot of the things that He's done for them. And really a lot of the things that He's done against them. And He, uh, verse 10, I sent a plague among you after after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword. And He lists a lot of things and He says, Yet you have still not come back to Me. You have still not returned to Me. And it relates to the same thing because yet he keeps punishing them and he keeps punishing them that they still don't turn back. And it's interesting, but, but his hand is still stretched out. There's even more. And it's it's interesting to think of. And then the last part of verse 12 in Amos chapter 4 is prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And that's one of the scariest things to hear. Yeah. Good point. Good passage to relate. Okay. I think it's incredible God's grace and long suffering because... I underlined every time in the chapter where it says and his hand is still stretched out. That's three times. But that's his hand of punishment. His hand is still stretched out to beat him again. The, the, thing, the thing is, that's, that's also, I think, you could also say in a way that it's grace because he still cares for them enough to punish them. Yeah, in a way, but I think here it's mostly threatening. I think this is parallel to the line before it. His anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. I think what he's saying to them is, he's going to beat you again. Sometimes his hand means the hand of grace. Here I think it's not even the grace of chastisement. It's the hand of punishment. It's the execution of his wrath. What's your point about the orphans and widows matches that thought. Yes. Yes. Other thoughts on chapter 9? In the northern kingdom, this is just what they're experiencing. King after king being murdered or taken down. Yes. Practically anarchy. I think this is a, this idea that the orphans of the are at fault. Or that they're just suffering from the sin of the Maybe at fault. I mean, maybe God sees the sin so pervasive that even the orphans and widows are involved and they deserve his wrath. Other thoughts? 4 poor chapter division here. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Woe to those who enact evil statutes, and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice, and rob the poor of my people of their rights, in order that widows may be in their sports, and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment, and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives, or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Okay. I think verse 4 shows this fits in line with those other paragraphs. Really, I think the best chapter division would be to make from 9-8 to 10-4 one chapter. Those are four stanzas, stanzas of the same poem, because they all have the same chorus. The last two lines of each of those stanzas. But, uh, He's condemning them here for what sins? Injustice. The injustice of doing what? Exactly. Taking advantage to enrich themselves at the expense of the helpless. God hates that kind of injustice, that kind of abuse of authority for selfish purposes. And uh, so he says, what are you going to do on the day of punishment? (laughs) You know, how are you going to escape the wrath of God? Where are you going to turn? You know, what's going to help you then? And the fact is, when God pours out his wrath, there's nothing. No status, no power, no ally, no nothing that you can turn to for help. Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. You might even see this happen sometimes. I wouldn't. This is probably a harder one to see. I wouldn't uh, say this real uh, forcefully. But a lot of times in these sections like this, they kind of touch the same note at the beginning and the end. Do you see the same verb in 9-8 as in 10-4? Yeah. 
And, and maybe that's kind of just tying that up together. So, you've got God's punishment against Ephraim four times in this section. Constant hammering of God's anger against Israel. Comments and questions? I believe that's about where they were. At this point, I think they'd pretty much gotten to the point where there wasn't hardly anything right with them. Jerry, yes. Something that just really upsets me, and I see it more and more in the world today, is just this attitude that we're reading about taking advantage of people that can't defend themselves. The weak, the the widows, the you know, I mean, and we've seen this, and Habakkuk stands out to me. They, you know, it depicts that same image of people taking advantage of weak people and helpless people, and I mean, government comes back to my mind. I see the government taking advantage of people that can't do things, and it's often the people that are not. I mean, I don't want to say dumb. But like, you know, people that don't see it coming, you know, and so it's kind of, you know, we've all we've got to watch each other's back, you know, and, you know, I mean, essentially just uh, look out for each other and make sure, you know, we don't take advantage of other people and that, that um, you know, if somebody doesn't see something, that they're being taken advantage of. I mean, does that make sense? Sure, absolutely. Justice and righteousness. And uh, just because you can get by with it doesn't mean that God is pleased. Sometimes it's easy to exploit the disadvantaged because they can't defend themselves. And nobody else will bother to defend them either because they're nobodies. But God will. And if there's anybody God will stand up for, it's those who can't stand up for themselves. Yeah, Ben. I think that's our worship. <laughs> yeah, who's going to stand up? The unborn child can't uh, defend itself, can he? Other thoughts? So, guys, back to having mercy on the orphan. I think so. (laughs) At least he didn't want his people to take advantage of him. Yeah. I do think that is an important distinction. Most of the time, it's not that he's not saying this is how I will treat the the orphan and the widow. This is how you ought to treat them. Even if they're not really deserving of it, the fact that they are physically helpless means that they need, you know, special attention. That doesn't make them good people any more than it made the Assyrians good people because God used them to conquer Israel, or the Babylonians good people because He used them to conquer Judah. That's not the point. The point is God has a plan and we're supposed to follow it. And if we don't, bad things will happen to everyone, including the people we're supposed to be helping. Other thoughts? That. I, I, I can't remember that. Uh, I was just thinking Deuteronomy that Moses makes a comparison, uh, urging the people to take care of the stranger and the wanderer and the widow and the orphan because of the way that Israel was at the beginning. Yeah, and that's a bunch of passages. Leviticus right. and different and passages. I, I mean, I'm just thinking that the practical, you know, knock you in the head, you know, why aren't you doing this kind of a kind of kind of an idea? I mean, you were these people, you know. You were this widow and orphan. You were this helpless soldier and stranger. Why would you help them now? Yes. The mercy God has shown for us as helpless and hopeless as we are ought to cause us to be merciful to the helpless and the hopeless. Good point. We see this sort of injustice in our society, and not just in the unjust judges or, or the, the criminal system or something like that, but we see it when we don't trust people to work on our cars without thinking they're probably scamming us, or to work on our house because they're probably scamming you know, there's just this, in our society, there is just this general distrust because if you don't watch out for people, like you were saying, people are just going to take advantage of you. And that sort of thing we're talking about here, like unjust scales, right? I'm just, just, just uh, in general, it doesn't matter who you are, they're going to try to scam you out of your money. Yeah, you don't want, if possible, to send a woman to the repair shop with the car. Because they're going to think they can take advantage of the woman. Doesn't everybody think that, at least? There's probably some reason for that in several repair shops. You know, if you think you can get by with it, you will. 
You know, I mean, that is so much the mentality. And we can see that with other people, man, they're bad. But do we ever have that mentality? Do we ever, you know, take advantage of the opportunity not to be all that fair with people who really won't be able to do anything about it? That's the question. There, injustice and unrighteousness is like indirect opposite to what we just talked about in 9-7, God's justice and righteousness, which is, I guess, part of the reason why it's so appalling to God, like it's like polar opposites. Amen. Alright, chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, Are not my princes all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish, or Hamath like Arpen, or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? Okay. God turns now to Assyria. We've had kind of his statements about Judah and about Israel, now about Assyria. Now what does he call Assyria? Yes, which means he was using Assyria to... Yeah, this was his paddle for Israel and Judah. And God used Assyria in that way. That was his instrument of punishment against his people. So, if God uses you, does that prove he's pleased with you? Whoa, that's scary. You ever feel like, well, I must be doing okay with God because look at all the people he's using me to help. That doesn't... God, God used Babylon to capture the nation that used to be his people, and that's the same nation that set, set up a golden image and sent, and sent three of his servants into a fiery furnace. So, And that's the same nation that God used to capture Israel. So it doesn't... So a lot of times God will use the simple nations against other simple nations. So when God uses us, it doesn't prove He likes us or that He approves of us. Don't ever use the fact that, well, I'm helping people as a proof that you're okay. Why didn't God? Why wasn't He happy with the Syria? Yes. Their motive wasn't to be an instrument of God. Their motive was to pridefully conquer other nations for their own glory. And they were proud of all the nations they'd conquered. And they thought they could do to Jerusalem and her images just like they'd done to all the other nations. They didn't even recognize a distinction in the different gods. And uh, basically they credited their successes militarily to themselves. That is something God hates. That pride. That, that failure to recognize God as the source. I think we need to cringe whenever we say or we hear others say, well, I did this and I did that and look at all the things I am doing with no recognition given to God as the source of the blessing. Uh, that even Paul and, and, and others when they come back from missionary journeys would talk all, about all the things the Lord had done through them. We need to, in our speech, speak of what the Lord has done much more than we speak of what we have done. Assyria had eye trouble. 
constantly focused on themselves. Comments and questions? It's just the opposite of what we do all the time. We constantly... I mean, you think about it, if you really think... Seriously, we, we do it even in subtle ways. You know, anytime somebody says something, say, hey, do you, do you know such and such? Oh, yeah, I knew that. Or you'll speak up and went in a... Like somebody asks a question, yeah, I was about to say that. Well, what are we doing? You know, we're promoting the fact, we're promoting ourselves. That's all we're doing. So what, maybe our motive should be, let's see how uh, hidden I can be. Let's see how, let's see if I can make myself unnoticed instead of trying to be the center of attention. I, I don't know, you know, is that one way to, to approach it or something? You know, because I was just thinking about that, I, I would do those things. You know, somebody would say something, yeah, I, I knew that, or, oh, I thought that was the answer, or I... I you know, I, I, you hear it sometimes like, uh, you know, I taught these studies, I converted these people, I helped these churches, you know, I comforted these bereaved, and so forth and so on. It just is a constant stream of all of my accomplishments. I think when we start doing that, it needs to, it needs to wake us up. It needs to, to be jarring. It, it ought to sound that way to us. You know, it's really helped me in Brazil, as I told a lot of you, because they really are good, the Brazilian brethren, about giving credit to God. And, uh, you know, if you even say, they say, how are you doing? And you say, I'm, I'm doing well. If you stop there half the time, they're going to say, gracias a Deus, thanks to God. And they're going to say it in that tone like, what do you mean saying you're doing well and not give credit to the Lord? <laughs> you know, you can't say that. <laughs> and uh, it makes you think about it. And it's gotten to the point where when I listen to other people at least, it kind of, it's like, wait a minute. You know, they're saying all these things, but, but it's just like, they're not giving the Lord any recognition. And it starts sounding kind of like, you know, running your fingers across the chalkboard. And of course, the more difficult thing is to police ourselves with that. And not just with what we say, but make what we say a reflection of how we think. That we actually see that it's the Lord and not us. One way to think about it is when you see anyone playing an instrument or say someone's playing the drums, you're not going to say, oh, that drum set is really talented. I mean, you're not looking at the drum set and thinking that that's the thing that's really talented. It's the person who's playing it. And when you think about it that way, God's doing it through us. It's not us that's really talented. It's God working through us. Absolutely. Yes. Man, that's a tremendous basketball. Look at how that thing goes through. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. If we only realize God's the actor, we're the instrument. (coughs) Yeah. Ryan. A really good guitarist can make even an old guitar sound really good. Yes. Thankfully, we can't blame our lack of diligence, though doing God's work because of any lack of ability that we have. Amen. Yes. Or Moses or Yes. Anything else? In verse nine, is he is he saying you know, cities I've conquered I'll be able to conquer your your cities as well. Yeah, yeah. I think he can conquer one just like he does the other. You know, they're, they're all pushovers to him. You know, I did this one, I can do that one. I did this one, that one, and you know, whatever. And actually, he sort of gets closer and closer as he goes to okay. Judah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Look at this next section, twelve to nineteen. When the Lord has finished all of his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing, or opened the mouth, or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? 
as if a rod would wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy for his soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Twelve, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness and listen to his speech in 13 and 14. If that's not a classic of pride. Whoa! Isn't that amazing? Does that remind you of anything? Reminds me of a couple things. This may not be what you're thinking of, but uh, if, if you go to the British Museum and look at the... the um, the stones that they carved after this campaign through Judah. I mean, they literally, he literally says almost exactly these things in this carving. Of course, I mean, it's all translated, but I mean, it's not in English. But I mean, he says almost literally every single one of these things. I, I conquered the city, and he even is making some of it up, where he, you know, he, he conquered one city and calls it another city, so it sounds better. And it's exactly what. God says he's going to say in this passage. Yeah, those, those annals of, of many of the empires only tell about how each battle they won the victory. And amazingly, in certain situations, you see them winning the victory. Each city they, um, uh, you know, are in as they retreat back toward their country. <laughs> Which always makes you wonder about that. Uh, so yeah, that's a good point. I'm thinking of some biblical illustrations of verses 13 and 14. Yes, and where? Daniel 4. Is this not Babylon the great which I have built by the glory of my power and for the something of my majesty or whatever? I don't know. Can I think of a New Testament parallel to verses 13 and 14. Herod, yes. Yes, the rich fool of Luke 12. You know, I will tear down, I will, I have much, I this and that. Yeah. So, and, and don't you love verse 14? You know, as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth, and they didn't even offer the resistance of a bird. <laughs> you know, man, I just wiped them out. I could handle anything. And God says, that's just like the axe boasting over the one who chops with it. You know, it's, a, it's like the basketball bragging over the guy who's shooting it, you know, as we use that illustration. Therefore, God's going to send a wasting disease and destroy him in a single day. Maybe the destruction of the 185,000 by the angel overnight was through disease. I think that may be an indication. And God's going to chop them down. Isn't that sort of interesting? Here is God's, uh, well, put it this way. The axe turns against the axe and chops down the forest of the Assyrians to the point where a child could conduct a census of the trees in the Assyrian forest back to the theme of children in these chapters. So, the pride of the Assyrian will be absolutely brought down by the power of God. Comments and questions? Shane. and consciously allowed him to use them as a tool and give them the glory to God? I think so. Mm -hmm. Israel did sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
There were a handful of times where they conducted battles giving the credit to the Lord and uh, were glorifying God in that. Other comments and questions? Yes, Eric. <clears throat> Verse 17a of his thorns and priors, and one day would be burned up. Do um, you think that's at all referring to private all? I mean, uh, obviously talking about Syria here. For that, God was trying to make something out of Syria, and then he turned out the same way as really trying to treat it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think certainly God wanted to use them, and they refused to allow him to. Other thoughts? Alright, we're going to take a break here. Let me ask for a show of hands. Is it too warm in here? How many people think it's too warm? Okay, pretty much everybody on this half of the room. So, well, I'll try to work on keeping the door open a little bit over this next hour. We'll take about a 15-minute break and then come back and work on the rest of Chapter 10. Thank you.